Hi, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts answer questions and share real world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guest, Simon Mole, president of STM Associates. Simon is an expert with rent regulation laws in New York City and has spent decades consulting the owners of multifamily buildings and the legal sector that also represents those owners. Thank you, Simon, for agreeing to be here today and discuss this very important component of multifamily investment real estate here in New York City. Thank you so much. So we were chatting a little bit, Simon, before we got started, and you had mentioned that you moved to the U.S. from Birmingham. Very cool. I moved to the U.S. in 1987. I got married to an American citizen in 1988, so this year is going to be 30 years of marriage. Wow, congratulations. Yes. That's fantastic. And then you have family too? I do. I have a uh, senior in college, a freshman in college, and a 10th grader. Oh, you, you have to be busy. <laughs> I, have to, I have to be busy, yes. Yeah. What made you get into the consulting on rent regulation business? I've had the good fortune to work in the social service sector. I worked in a drug rehab center as a volunteer back in 1988-89 in Alphabet City. And then I worked at Covenant House for runaway children right behind Port Authority. And then from Covenant House, I worked for a tier two shelter for homeless families in the South Bronx. And from that program, I worked for a uh, community housing group in the Bronx called Banana Kelly. Uh, So I have a unique insight to low-income housing and the welfare system and what puts people into the welfare system. And then I had the opportunity to work for a person that worked for the state of New York, and he wrote a lot of rent stabilization law. So he worked for the state of New York, he wrote a lot of the code, and I worked for him as an employee for three years, and I started my own business, uh, and that was uh, 23 years ago. Wow, so 23 years following and being an expert at rent regulation in the state of New York, not just New York City, correct? Well, it really, it's only uh, New York City, uh, Westchester, Nassau County. Those are the only areas that have uh, rent stabilization law. So the five boroughs, it's rent stabilization law, rent control law. Uh, For Westchester and Nassau County, it's the Emergency Tenant Protection Act, but it's governed by the same state agency, and it's essentially rent stabilization law. So in listening to you, you do have a unique perspective. You've got this perspective of the people that actually rent regulation, stabilization control help. And yet, most of your clients are the landlords. That is absolutely true. So uh, part of what I do is I advise people on rent stabilization law compliance The other part of what I do, which is a huge chunk of rent stabilization law, is that owners have uh, an annual regulatory requirement to register their buildings with the state of New York as of April 1st of each calendar year. 
Each owner of a residential building with six or more apartments has to tell the state the name of uh, each tenant, their rent, and beginning and ending lease terms. So not only do I do that registration work for uh, over 8,000 apartments and 500 buildings, I also do it for community housing groups in the Bronx, in Upper Manhattan, and in Brooklyn, individual owners, property management companies, and a couple of mutual funds. So I do do the code for both sides. So it's not just it's not just landlords that are trying to increase their rents. It's also for the community housing sector where affordable housing is actually being proactively created to help people be able to live in the city of New York. Theoretically, yes. I've worked on the for-profit side of housing for 22 years, but I know the community-based housing for almost 30 years. You know, the history of the, the city was neighborhoods burning to the ground, the buildings being foreclosed upon by the city agency, uh, Housing Preservation and Development, HBD, and the New York City Department of Finance. So what they did is they foreclosed on thousands and thousands of buildings, and the city became the landlord. So what they tried to do is they created half a dozen programs within HBD, turned the buildings back over to community housing group, to uh, individual buildings and tenant organizations, and uh, not-for-profit housing groups, and some property management companies that were more tenant-focused. So that was a practice where some 25,000 apartments went from city management over to community housing groups in the 1980s and the 1990s. Unfortunately, because of rent stabilization law, it hamstrings the ability to collect a fair rent for apartments. So a lot of community housing groups found out that they didn't have either the cash flow or the knowledge to run that portfolio of buildings that was given back to them by the city of New York. And in the last 10 years, many of those buildings that were turned over, the city of New York has had to turn around and repossess and pass on to for-profit property management companies. So were they still taking city-owned buildings that weren't originally part of that program, ones that are becoming part of that program now that they're taking back ownership and then doing it differently than they did it before? They are doing it differently. What they used to do before, you were an owner, you couldn't collect enough rent, your building was in poor shape, so you didn't pay your property taxes, you didn't pay your mortgage. The city of New York would take possession of your building. They would then manage the building themselves and do a poor job, and then it would be expensive. They would try and do repairs. It was expensive for them to manage the building. They were overwhelmed. What they decided to do, what they started to do, is when people get into difficulties with their building, a private owner, rather than take possession of your building, They'll try and go to the owner and work something out where they'll lend money directly to the owner and help him rehab the building with conditions that if they lend that money, the owner will guarantee that all the apartments will remain rent-stabilized. Or if the owner is not willing to do something like that, rather than take the extra step and foreclose on the building, they would uh, uh, pass it directly to a third party, to a property management group, that specializes in dealing with distressed buildings. So there are half a dozen property management groups that had a portfolio of 20 or 30 buildings maybe 15, 20 years ago. 
that now have a portfolio of three or 400 buildings because they're in favor with the city of New York and they get these distressed buildings. Even though they're there to run the building and make a profit from themselves, uh, their hearts are in the right place. They are there to try and make the buildings work and maintain uh, heat and essential services, treat the tenants more fairly than the private owner was doing before. So the city has changed how it went down this process so those management companies that have those buildings now they don't have to be community groups they don't have to be non-for-profits they can be just a for-profit owner that has agreed to certain terms and conditions for that building they basically have a favored status with the city of new york they they have a, a track record of taking these buildings on of borrowing money from the city of New York, of spending the money on the buildings, of treating the tenants fairly, being more responsible managers of the, of the real estate than the private owners were. They're not perfect, but they're much better than the city of New York would have been, and they're definitely better than the private owner when he was managing the building. Is there any data on where most of these buildings are located and also what percentage of the total number of multifamily buildings in New York, what percentage of that these buildings represent? I don't know any specific numbers. I do know that 30, 40 years ago, there were a million one, a million two people that lived in rent-stabilized apartments. And that number has dropped to six or 700,000 rent-stabilized apartments. And only uh, a few tens of thousands of those tenants are rent-controlled. I-, I do know that when I was working with community housing groups, at one point, they had a portfolio across the five boroughs of maybe 50 or 60,000 apartments. So it was a lot of apartments that the city of New York gave to them in the 70s and the 80s. So probably 10% of the portfolio was distressed and went to the city of New York, went out to community housing groups. But like I said, unfortunately, that trend has changed. Difficult to maintain a building if you have tenants that aren't paying much rent. So let's actually get into that part of it. Thank you so much for that extra information, talking about the community groups and the programs that the city of New New York had to actually turn buildings over to experienced owners and experienced management companies. Uh, I've got some interesting questions for you going forward, so I'm looking forward to the rest of our time together today. We we could certainly have a complete podcast on that subject, but we're going to get to the subject of this podcast, which is rent regulation in New York City. You founded STM Associates, you said, about 23 years ago, correct? Correct, right? yes. And uh, I have a series of questions that I want to ask you. And these questions actually aren't just my questions. They're questions that I've come up with as a, as a result of talking to people that I know that own a portfolio of investment real estate in the city of New York. Some of them are frustrated with the system. And what I'd like to really get to today is figure out what it is that you do to help them and how you help them strike that balance that they have to strike every single day between wanting to have a profitable investment real estate business and also treat their tenants in a way that helps them retain those people living in their in their homes and in their communities and that they're actually providing a great place to live in the city of New York. So what, tell me a little bit about, you know, people use these terms interchangeably. Tell me a little bit about 
rent regulation and when it was established. And rent regulation, I would imagine, is the umbrella name for the guidelines, where, which are actually rent control and rent stabilization. So during World War II, when the GIs went off to fight across the seas, the city of New York did not want uh, owners and landlords to gouge the, the wives and the widows. So they came up with a system of rent control laws to put a limit on how much rent could be increased. And it was supposed to be a temporary change to how real estate in the five boroughs was rented. And it was very popular because obviously uh, in New York City, 80% of people rent and only 20% of people own their own homes. In the United States, 70% of people own and 30% rent. So this rent control law was supposed to be temporary and... uh, 1982, 1983, with some 40 or 50 years later, we still have rent control law. So owners hated rent control law, and they hated the fact that it was uh, adjudicated by the Conciliation and Arbitration Board up in Columbus Circle in New York City, and they petitioned the state of New York to take over uh, rent control law because they figured the state of New York would be uh, fairer with adjudicating the code. So the Omnibus Housing Act uh, of 1983 was passed. Uh, Rent stabilization law came into being at that time. And instead of being monitored by the city of New York, it became monitored by the state of New York. So everybody, when they call me up with questions, it's always the city of New York, the city of New York, the city of New York, even through current day, and the mayor and the city council have no jurisdiction over rent stabilization law. It's only the state of New York that controls the code. So that's the first issue. Prior to, with that change in direction with the state taking over the administration of the code, owner said it's ridiculous. This is hindering investment every time we build something new we're going to have these laws that govern the rent so um, that was written into the code that the laws don't affect new construction anything built prior to february of 1974 on subject to rent stabilization law anything built after that date if you take a tax abatement then the property will be subject to the code with the change of the city agency to the state agency anybody that was living in an apartment under the city jurisdiction would be a rent control tenant. Anybody living in an apartment with the state's jurisdiction, they are a rent stabilized tenant. The actual cutoff date between the two types of tenancy is 7171. So you have to be uh, in your 60s, 70s, or 80s really to still be a rent control tenant. But the, the number of both pools of tenants drops each year with the passage of time. Then in 1997, uh, when the owner lobby was really strong, they pushed for uh, the legal deregulation of apartments once rents hit a certain amount, which at that time was $2,000. And owners have been taking advantage of the deregulation process. And uh, as legal rents cross uh, that deregulation threshold, they become permanently deregulated from the code. That threshold is higher now, right? The threshold went from $2,000 it was $2,000 from 1997 to June of 2011. 
from 11 to 15, the threshold was $2,500. In 2015, it went to $2,700. And the one thing that the current mayor did do, the state of New York sets the guidelines for vacancy increases in apartments. The city of New York and the rent guidelines board sets the guidelines for uh, renewal increases. And in a, a twist, the mayor said that uh, the renewal guidelines, as they change each year, will change the threshold amount as well. So the threshold went to $2,700. It is now $2,733.50. Every time there's a, an increase for one-year renewal leases, that threshold is going to go up. So it's going to keep creeping up slowly but surely. It's the city's attempt to slow or stop the legal deregulation of apartments. So as the rents do go up based on the schedule that a landlord is allowed to follow, does it accelerate faster than that difference every year of the threshold so that eventually you can catch up and somebody can deregulate an apartment? The elected people in in Albany that extend the code every four years in the city of New York, basically have the deregulation threshold at a pretty good number, with the exception of, you know, Manhattan, uh, maybe a couple of locations in Brooklyn and Astoria. There are very few apartments where the legal rent is over $2,700. So it, it's increasingly difficult to deregulate apartments. Well, we're going to talk a little bit later about some of the ways that that can be done. But before we do that, uh, these are laws, right? These are not guidelines. These are laws. These are things that have to be followed. Otherwise, you receive penalties. Absolutely. Just a little bullet point of the different things that a landlord has to do to comply with the rent regulation laws of uh, rent control and rent stabilization. Well, one of the things that is very strange about rent stabilization law is it's adjudicated by the state of New York, but in New York City and housing court, they have dual jurisdiction to rule on rents and lease renewals and uh, other tenant issues. So over the last 30 years, you've literally had hundreds of individual rulings in New York City housing court, which changed the direction of the code. And then every time there is a, a rent overcharge decision or an appeal or some other administrative order that's issued by the state of New York, that can also change the direction of rent stabilization law. So the code is tens of thousands of individual decisions, but almost none of it is written down unless you are privy to all the housing court decisions each and every day across the five boroughs and you're privy to all the individual orders that the state of New York issues to various tenants and landlords, it's very difficult to keep on top of all of the changes. And there are many changes, and these changes happen all the time. And one of the worst things with the changes that the state of New York does is that they can make a major change in the code. And when they make that change, it is retroactive backwards in time. So you thought you've prepared for everything. Then yes. there's a change in the code. And now it's retroactive. So while you thought you prepared, you really didn't prepare, and you could actually be subject to penalties as a result of that. 
So I would like to give a concrete example of that. Please do. In 2007, the state of New York said, if an apartment is vacant for four or more years, or if an apartment is occupied by the building employee or the building owner, 48 consecutive months, when you go to rent that apartment, you can rent it out at a market value. Because there is a four-year statute of limitations and you haven't collected a rent in that unit for four years, technically it's a first rent because there was no rent within the last four years. So you can go ahead and, and rent that unit at market. So that is a wonderful boon if you own a building and it's eight or ten apartments and you live in one of the apartments and now you're going to sell it and you're going to move down to Florida or wherever you're going to go, that your apartment become free market. Or maybe you're an investor and you're buying a building in Brooklyn or the Bronx where it was burnt out and it was on the street corner for 20 years and nobody lived in any of those apartments. And now you buy the building and you rehab all those vacant apartments and you're going to set a market rent for those apartments because you're following the code. It allows you to set a first or market rent. So the agency decided in 2013, 2014, in an individual ruling with just one person, that that section of the code was far too generous to owners. And they decided, and, and now that's been clarified, that you have to go back to the last rent of record, however many years ago it was. You have to go back to that last rent of record. They have something called bridging the gap formula. We take that last rent of record, you add in two-year lease renewals to current day to 18, you add in the current vacancy allowance, and then you add in any renovation dollars you might spend to determine that market rent. You know, well, it, 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 this just seems to be stacked against the landlord. I mean, the, the bottom line is you purchase a building, you've got tenants in there, they're paying rents. The only way you're going to make money is to have turnover. Now, there are a lot of uh, uh, legal ways to create turnover, or people leave for whatever reason. And now you have that opportunity that you want to charge a market rent for your apartment. But the building that you own is a rent-stabilized building, and there is a formula. There's a formula that you have to follow to set that next rent. And that formula involves calculating how long the previous tenant was there using the New York State vacancy factor, spending renovation dollars, and you're allowed to... Uh, add those costs into the uh, rent increase for the next tenant. And every owner knows that if they want to charge a market rent, you know, the deregulation threshold went to t from two grand to 25 to $2,700, that they need to spend X amount of money to cross that threshold. And if they don't spend th that X amount of money to cross the threshold and they charge a market rent anyway, that if they are unlucky or the tenant protection unit or the tenant loses their job or somebody finds out, in the worst-case scenario, they could have a, an administrative action and they could lose a lot of money. And they could ultimately, they could lose their building. And I do have clients that have lost their building. So that's a good primer that these are not guidelines. These are laws that they do need to be followed. And while there are lots of different penalties, they all have one thing in common, is that they can be quite a financial burden. So what I wanted to ask you now, Simon, is there are two agencies that I hear about all the time. You talked a little bit before about how this is New York State law. Uh, it's not in every single county. 
And then the two agencies that I hear about are HPD, which is Housing... Preservation and Development. And then DHCR, which is... Um, It's actually... uh, they were called DHCR. They've changed their names. They're now Homes and Community Renewal is their, their new name. But they are the state agency that is responsible for rent stabilization law. They are the people that you register your apartment building with each year. They are the people that will send you that unfortunate rent overcharge notice. They are the people that tenants send their complaints to. The city agency, HBD, is more responsible for repairs and renovations. Even though the two agencies both have the legal jurisdiction over the building that you own, they rarely talk to each other. There are tax abatement programs that HBD monitors, and those tax abatement programs have rent stabilization law components, but the tax abatement program does not talk to the state of New York in terms of how those registration components are going to be taken care of. The two of them actually march to the beat of a different step, even though they have jurisdiction over your building. So if you were going to increase your rents because you did a individual apartment improvement or a major capital improvement, you would be talking to the HPD about that? You would be talking to the state of New York. Oh, so you'd be talking to DHCR. I was clarifying that because you would mention repairs and renovations uh, with HPD. If a tenant has, uh, you know, uh, a flood in their apartment or they have uh, an electrical outlet that's dangerous or something oh, else. Oh, okay. So that's initiated by the tenant because of a need for a repair or Right. So they, the tenant has two choices. They can either fill out a formal piece of paper with the state of New York. It's a decreased apartment services complaint. The state of New York will process it. And if they agree with the tenant, they will reduce the rent for the apartment. It's a pretty severe penalty. But that process of the tenant filing the complaint and the state granting it can take upwards of a year. So that doesn't do the tenant any good if they have running water in their apartment and it's a hazard. So they will contact the city of New York. The city of New York will react to the complaint a lot quicker. In the end, there's not much joy for the tenant because the city of New York will issue violations to the building. If it's something that is dire emergency, they might come along and they might fix the issue and bill the owner separately. But it literally has to be running water gushing through the building for the city of New York to send somebody and fix it immediately. Both both agencies take a long time to process tenant complaints. So the violations that you see that are registered on specific buildings, those come from HPD? They do indeed. And really, from a practical point of view, that there are um, A, B, and C violations. Uh, some buildings will have hundreds of A and B violations. They mean nothing. It's a list of repairs. Some of those items might have happened many, many years ago that have been cured. The owner hasn't paid money to have the city inspector come out and inspect and remove from record. It's only the C violations that have a consequence And they only have a consequence if the owner is going to go and sell the building or refinance the building. When you register your building with the state in New York, there's a registration history. And there is a second database that lists all the tenant and owner actions. And that list of tenant and owner actions would include uh, granted complaints about decreased services in an apartment or in a building. That listing could uh, have massive financial consequences. So I'd like to give an example of that. Somebody called me up last week and they said this last Friday, we're buying a building on Monday 
for a million dollars. We're buying a six-unit building. I have this uh, administrative order from DHCR. What does it mean? So the administrative order from DHCR, there was a fire in the building 20 years ago. The fire forced every tenant in the building to have to vacate. Every tenant filed a complaint with the state of New York. The state of New York accepted that complaint and said, you, Mr. Tenant, only have to pay $1 a month rent. Uh, and then when the owner finish, finishes renovating the building, you can move back to your apartment at the same rent you were at. The problem w- was the fire damage was cured. Uh, the people moved back to the building. Some people moved back. Some people did not. But the order affected every tenant in the building. The owner had an obligation to then tell the state of New York, DHCR, we fixed all the items. Here is a restoration application. Here is proof that we fixed the items and proof that the tenants moved back. The owner never filed that restoration application. So even though the order was issued 20 years ago, every month for the last 20 years, the tenant should have only been paying $1 a month in rent. So my client was going to buy the building, and he would only be able to collect $8 a month in rent because the rent restoration was never filed. And the rent that was overpaid for the last four years should the current tenants realize that they hit this uh, financial windfall, we figured out it was $900,000 of treble damage penalties. So if he hadn't called me that Friday afternoon and uh, I picked up the phone instead of watching the golf on TV, he would have bought that building and he would have uh, been in big trouble. He had an amazing weekend that weekend, knowing that he wasn't doing that on Monday morning, that's for sure. That's a great story. Thank you, Simon. So uh, what about the existing owner now? Is he subject to giving back all that rent to those tenants? Well, the problem is with the way the state of New York does things, the process to restore the rent for those apartments, even though it's common sense that people have been living in the building for 20 years. It's common sense that the vacate order that was issued when the fire happened has been cured uh, and that people have been living there for 20 years and they've been paying the full rent. The state of New York says, until you file that formal application with us and tell us that you restored the rents, the administrative order from 20 years ago is still in full effect. And when you file that restoration application, it's not retroactive. It's only perspective from the date you file it. So you're going to file it now, but uh, we'll agree with you that the fire damage was cured and everybody should move back and pay the rent. But everybody in the building has been paying a market rent for the last four years. And when you file that restoration application, the state mails a copy of it to each tenant in the in the building telling them that their rent should have been frozen at a dollar. So what do you think the tenants are going to do when they get their restoration application? They're going to hire an attorney and they're going to make a lot of money. So the the, the state's not going to force the penalties, but the tenants, when they receive this notification, which they will receive, they're going to say, hey, what's this? Yes. And then if they investigate it, they'll find that they could get a financial windfall. Correct. And that puts the existing owner and maybe possibly your client, who would have been the subsequent owner, at great, great risk. Because when you buy a building under rent stabilization law and real estate law, you buy it as is. So if you don't do that title search and you don't do rent stabilization law due diligence, 
You inherit all the good things and all the bad things on that day of sale. You step into your predecessor's shoes and whatever litigation he had, it becomes your responsibility unless it's written into the contract of sale. This sounds like a very, very complicated environment for owners of investment real estate in the areas that are subject to this. And I would like to talk about some of the things that are positive about this that actually helps landlords purchase buildings that could have problems that can be fixed and that creates value add where they can actually substantially increase over a period of time the value of the building because it was mismanaged. I consider it positive if you're going to buy a building and you either hire my company, STM Associates, or a competent real estate company, and you do a thorough due diligence report. I think most people get value because I review 300 buildings a year, and almost no building is squeaky clean when it comes to rent stabilization law compliance. So I think if you do your homework and you find a building has issues, then that's your chance to document those issues, ask for some consideration in the price or money, put in escrow, uh, and then you're buying the building uh, at a reduced price. So if the worst-case scenario happens, then you're partially covered. I think that's the best way to get value. I can't tell you how many people call me up on a weekly basis and tell me, I bought a building, I, I didn't look at any of the records. I left the closing. I don't have any tenant records. They either didn't have them or I didn't ask for those records. And then that severely affects the value of the building. So the, the biggest thing with saving money and adding value is being prepared and learn before you buy the building. Sounds like incredibly good advice to me. So I just want to go backwards a little bit. Rent regulation is the term that describes what it is we're talking about, but rent stabilization and rent control are the actual laws. Correct. What, what is the difference between rent stabilization and rent control? And before you talked about rent control ended at a specific point, so now people would have to be much older uh, so talk to me about the difference between rent control and rent stabilization, and then we can ask you a couple of more questions about that. Well, rent control law, um, you have to have resided in your apartment since 7171. It, it probably affects less than 50,000 tenants in, in the five boroughs. Now, can those people pass that rent control on to a family member? It's an excellent question, and the simple answer is they can. If a family member lives there for two years before, and they are a, a child or a nephew or a niece or a younger brother or even in some other situations, extended families, as long as they can show that they lived in the apartment for two full years, they can move in with the same rent control protections. And you want to have those rent control protections. Under rent stabilization law, you give a tenant a lease renewal, the rent goes up. Under rent control law, they have a really complicated process for increasing the rent, which most owners don't do because it's very uh, bureaucratic and, and tedious. 
So that is a reason why there are so many rent control apartments where the rents are still less than a hundred dollars a month for a two or three bedroom apartment in the middle of Manhattan. So when you said two years, if someone's living there, they have and they're living there by themselves. They've been there since before that date in nineteen seventy one. And now they have a immediate family member move in, a nephew or a niece, for instance. That person has to live with the existing tenant for two years? They do. All right. So they can't, they can't just move in like a month before. Correct. And then that person, because of their age, passes away, and now all of a sudden they get the rent control. They have to prove that they actually live there. They do, and, yeah. and there are standard proofs like, you know, you, you, your voter registration is there, your uh, Verizon cell phone bill, uh, you know, your tax filings, your car insurance, all of those normal things. Uh you know, but most owners are on the ball with that. They know that there is an older person living in the building, the super knows, and then all of a sudden a younger person shows up and you'll start to ask questions, you know. You know, maybe that older person is going to uh, move to Florida or a nursing home or move in with other family members, so you want to be on top of that because you don't want that succession to happen. So it's important to keep records when you start to notice that somebody else is in the apartment, someone else is staying there. And you want to keep very, very accurate records of when they started being noticed in the building so that if it's not two years, you can prove it. Is the onus on the landlord to prove that this person did not live there for two years? Under rent stabilization law and rent control law, the onus is always on the owner for all legal arguments. Always. So, I mean, ideally, you'd want to put in a video camera at the front door and have actual proof when the tenant moved in because there's so much value to be gained by getting possession of that apartment and not having to litigate it and spend those legal fees and two years in housing court. So let's say for instance, someone does leave a rent controlled apartment and nobody else is claiming succession to that rent control. And now it's vacant. What happens now? Well, first of all, you have to get legal possession of the apartment. Believe it or not, even though it's in your building and you know that the person moved out to a nursing home or you know that they're deceased, you just can't go up and change the lock and throw out the furniture. You you have to uh, negotiate with the family. They have to legally turn over the apartment to you before you change that lock and, and, and empty out all the possessions. Uh, and unfortunately, they're... Uh, there are only two ways now to set a first rent. A lot of people mistakenly assume that once that rent control tenant is no longer there, the unit goes to market, and that is not the case. There is a formula that you have to follow to set the next rent. That formula used to be very generous because the city and the state realized that you had that apartment at under market for many, many years, so they would assist owners to bring that rent closer to a market value not at a market value but closer to a market value that section of the code changed in october of 2010 the new formula says that you're allowed to take what the rent control rent was and increase it by 33 percent so if you uh had a tenant that was only paying a hundred dollars and you get to increase that hundred dollars by 30 percent now the legal rent only goes up to 130 dollars you're then allowed to add in any renovations that you might need to spend to make the apartment uh, marketable. But obviously, if 
it's a studio or a one bedroom, uh, it's difficult to spend a hundred grand or two hundred grand on renovating that apartment. And for every four thousand dollars you spend in renovations, you're allowed to increase the rent by a hundred bucks. So if you spend forty grand renovating that vacant rent control departments, now this hypothetical rent would go from $130 to $1,130. Well, even if it's a studio apartment in Manhattan, the market value could be $2,500. And if it's a one-bedroom, the market value could be $3,500. So now you've got to spend eighty grand or $120,000 in renovations to bring that apartment up to market. And that change in code happened in, in October of 16. Prior to that, there was a much more generous formula for setting the rent. I got so excited when you said that it was a very generous formula. And then, oh, you popped my balloon. This is part of, I mean, the proponents of rent stabilization law is it's there to provide affordable housing for all New Yorkers. If you live in any other city in the United States or most cities across the planet, it's a market system. So you, you have to understand that when you buy a rent-stabilized building, you don't control a whole bunch of things that happen in the building. And some of these laws profoundly tie your hands with what you can do in terms of the rents. If you're in a landmark building, it profoundly ties your hands with what you can do in terms of renovating the building with the exterior Um so you have to bear that in mind when you buy the building that it could be a very, very long process to bring rents to market value. The important thing to remember here, though, is that when someone is buying an investment property that is subject to all these things, they're paying market value for it based on what its cash flow is, what its revenue is, what its expenses are, and, and how much they're going to earn in terms of returns. So depending on what people are willing to pay in a marketplace, what kind of capitalization rate they want, what kind of internal rate of return they want, uh, all of this is going to be taken into consideration. You would think so. There has to be clients that you do an analysis for that are buying buildings where you see that the building is a profitable building and that what they're going into is something that can be managed. I think the clients are new to the business. It's exciting. It's speculative. Unless you buy a building and you own it for a number of years and you have to deal with the cash flow as a reality and you're not getting money from a pension fund to go out and buy a portfolio of buildings because they want to invest in New York City, if you actually have to do it because you need the money from the building to pay for your own personal expenses and live, I think my clients that, that have been in the business for a long time are much more cautious with how they buy. You know, obviously there is a, a certain amount of uh, you need luck, you need turnover in the building, uh, you need to do what you can to maximize that. Um, but there are a lot of people out there that buy buildings and they, they, they don't have a positive cash flow. So in that example that we talked about before with, with the rent control and the $133 and then doing the renovations and bringing it to $1,133, so that person to bring that particular unit out of rent regulation is going to be their path through uh, rent stabilization till they get to that threshold, whatever it may be. When they get to it, 27, 2733, 28, if it's you know years from now, 29, $3,000, and then eventually they'll be out of uh, rent regulation. And then the second term is rent 
stabilization, and that's handled a little differently. It is handled a little differently. Uh, rent stabilization, it's much easier to uh, increase a rent for a tenant because you just give them a paper lease every year or two. The guidelines are set by the New York City Rent Guidelines Board. The guidelines the last two or three years have been historically low at zero, but prior to that, the guidelines were uh, two, three, four, even five, six percent for one year renewals. You don't need any special paperwork or any special process to increase a rent rent state because because it's easier to increase a rent. Uh, most rent stabilized rents are much much higher. And the rent-stabilized rents, can they also be increased based on capital improvements and individual apartment improvements? They, they absolutely can. So there are, there are two ways that you would increase a rent. You would either uh, renovate the building, uh, put in a new front door, a boiler, or a roof, and you would file that uh, application with the state of New York, and the state of New York would say, well, for that amount of money, we're going to allow you to increase the rent $5 per room for all the rooms in your building. Uh, that's called a major capital improvement application. You don't need anybody's permission to do that. You do the work. The state of New York approves the application or denies the application, and then you pass the increase on to the tenants. For the for the stuff within an apartment, if the apartment is vacant, you can spend as much money as you wish to renovate it uh, and then add that to the rent for the next tenant. If the apartment is occupied, you cannot increase their rent through renovations without getting their permission first. So if you say to them, I'm going to put in a brand new kitchen, I'm going to give you tile floors instead of the vinyl, I'm going to renovate the bathroom, and they sign something saying, all right, that sounds great, and I'm willing to pay a higher rent after you do it, do you have to specify what the higher rent is going to be? Absolutely. So it's the same formula for uh, most buildings. It's a 140th. So if you're putting in a new bathroom and it's four grand, their rent is going to go up by $100. You have to put in writing. I'm going to put in a new bathroom. It's going to cost four grand. Your rent is going to go from nine hundred to a thousand dollars, and it has to be that exact amount. And the tenant signs it. You get it notarized in advance of doing the work, and then you do the work and you increase their rent. What typically happens is that most tenants want a new kitchen and a new bathroom, but they don't want their rent to go up. So what I advise owners to do is to negotiate, negotiate with the tenant. Maybe you spend the eight grand, maybe you only get to add four of it to the rent, but you need to do it because you're renovating the whole line in the building. So that's a, that's a way of getting some value from the money that you have to invest anyway. And obviously when a landlord is doing this, whether it's an MCI, major capital improvement, or an IAI, individual apartment improvement, they have to keep extremely meticulous records because the agencies are not going to grant them the increases unless they can prove the money spent. That is the single most question that I get almost on a daily basis from new clients. I bought a building. I know the apartment was renovated. I have pictures. Uh, I didn't get the renovation documents when I bought the building. What can I do? The state of New York is beyond meticulous on this issue. There has to be a line item breakdown of every dollar that's spent in the building. You have to say exactly how much square footage of sheetrock you put in, how many buckets of compound, how many two by fours, 
how much the tiling costs, how much the door saddle costs, everything throughout the apartments. They want a three or four page breakdown. You've got to have corresponding council checks and purchase materials as well. Uh, if you don't have that stuff, they won't give you credit for any of it. So if someone buys a building and a renovation was done prior to them owning the building, whether it be a major capital improvement or an individual apartment improvement, and the previous landlord did not take advantage of the ability to increase rents, the new owner can subsequently apply for that if they have all the records? They cannot. Oh, they cannot. Okay. They cannot. If you renovate a building, you do building-wide items, you have two years from the date the last check to the vendor cleared to file for that increase. If you renovated an apartment and you never added in those costs, you can't do it after the fact. So the new owner can't do it, regardless of what kind of records were kept and whether it's within the two years. Yeah. Okay. Simon, we're spending a lot of time together today. You are sharing some amazing information. I am sure our listeners are getting a lot out of this. And there's a lot more to get out of it. But I understand you have somewhere you have to be. So we're going to take a break. And then at some point in the future, very shortly, I'm going to give you a call. And we're going to finish up so our listeners aren't left hanging. That is wonderful, Bill. It's been fantastic. Great. So I'll uh, be giving you a call in the next day or so, and we'll go from there. Until then, everyone. Thank you so much. So it's time to give Simon a call and pick up where we left off. Let's call him now. Simon Mole speaking. Simon, how are you? It's Bill calling you to finish up. So glad I got you. Yeah, so glad I got you. How's your morning going? It's going very well. Good. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Well, you know, for our listeners, just want to let him know that we're going to spend about another 30 minutes with Simon. Uh, He's going to share some more interesting information with us. So we're looking forward to that. But before we do that, I just want to cover a couple of things. First of all, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are excited about getting in touch with you to talk with you, Simon. And I understand there are two ways to get in touch with you, your phone number and your email address. Would you would you share that with everyone? Sure. The best way is to uh, email me at dhcrguru at gmail.com or dhcrguru at gmail.com or to call my office directly at 718-318-8340. Those are the two and only ways to reach me. All right, fantastic. So if anyone wants to reach out, they can go ahead and do it that way. So what I wanted to ask you, Simon, is when someone does engage your services, I would imagine there are a lot of different ways they would engage your services for different things, say buying a building and they want to do some due diligence before they buy it like we talked about before, or they're selling it and they want to get it set up so that when they sell it, they can ensure that the future owner is not going to have any problems and that'll obviously increase the value. Tell me a little bit how the process goes when somebody engages you. Well, typically people call me up because they have a rent stabilization law issue. They already own a building, a tenant files a rent overcharge complaint. Uh, a reduction of services complaint or some other action the owner doesn't know how to deal with it or they think they do know how to deal with it 
and then they call me up to pick my brains and then they realize that they don't have the expertise and there's so much to lose by not doing it properly. Or another scenario is that somebody owns a building and they're going to either sell it or they refinance it and they haven't filed the annual rent registrations for many years and they call up my uh, company to uh, do those missing filings for them, which I can do on an expedited basis in two or three business days. And that can help with uh, either selling the building or refinancing. My greatest source of work is I have a relationship with about two dozen law firms in Manhattan and the outer boroughs. And whenever anybody's going to uh, buy a building through their attorney, they call me up and ask me to do a due diligence report. And then that way I get introduced to uh, new clients. And after those clients buy that building, then they use me on an ongoing basis with a DHCR and rent stabilization law compliance. Fantastic. That's typically how I, I meet people. They have a need, they call me up, and then we take it from there. Thanks for sharing that with us. So I would like to talk about legal and preferential rents, Bill. It's one of the biggest issues today in New York real estate. In one way, it's a complicated issue, and in another way, it's a very simple issue. Can I give you an example of a building that I saw that had this situation? Go ahead. So there was a building, and let's just say that it was over 50 units. All the, all the units, except for maybe a couple, were rent stabilized or rent controlled. And a large percentage of those units had what I was told was preferential rents, which means that there was a legal rent that the landlord could be charging, but they were actually charging less. Should we make the assumption that if someone buys that building, that they're going to be able to go ahead and start to increase these rents at an accelerated rate because there's this big gap between what people are paying and what they legally should be paying as far as, uh, you know, as far as rent regulation rules are concerned? Well, 99% of people would make that same assumption that you just made that upon purchase that they're going to charge the higher rents. Because a lot of people, before they buy a building, they get the DHCR records themselves, and they see the DHCR records have a, a two-tier rent structure. They have legal rents and concession rents, and um, you know, own, owners are savvy. They know what the the real market value is for a three-bedroom or a two-bedroom or a studio, and they're looking at this building that they want to buy, and they see two sets of rents and the Actual rents are, you know, either substantially below market or two, three hundred dollars below market, and you know they would want to jump up to that higher legal rent once they buy the building, and that tenant's current lease expires. But that's where the floor is because rent registrations do not make uh, higher rents valid. The code specifically says. That if you, Mr. Owner, are going to have a two-tier rent structure, you need to list the higher rents on the original vacancy lease, and it has to be on the first page of the vacancy lease, not on the rider or buried somewhere else. And underneath where it says the monthly rent for this apartment is, and you put that higher rent, you can write in below, and the preferential rent is going to be X amount for the terms of this lease. So many people do not put the higher rent either on the vacancy lease 
or on subsequent renewal leases. They might register it with the state of New York, but they do not put it on the paper lease. And if you don't put it on the paper lease, it doesn't exist. I thought I saw somewhere if the lease is not specific, if it makes no reference to the preferential rent, that the existing or new landlord could increase the rent. But that's not true? No, that's absolutely not true. You're renting an apartment, you're entering into a contract between you and the landlord, and that contract needs to say on the first page, the legal rent for my apartment is three grand, and I'm going to be paying $2,000 because it's a small studio. And then the, the renewal and the renewal after that have to state the higher rent and the lower rent. And then at some time in the future, due to market conditions or a new owner, they want you to pay more than the $2,000 you're paying for the studio. You have those written leases where the tenant is fully aware that there is a two-tier rent structure and that the lower rent can be terminated at any time. And if you don't list these rents on the paper leases, you can't get them. To take this issue uh, one step further, on your uh, list of items to cover today, uh, one of the questions was, you know, is there a scenario where an apartment is deregulated and that is absolutely it, you don't have to worry about it ever again? And even for apartments where you have crossed the deregulation threshold on the original lease and you've registered it as such with the agency, if you don't do subsequent leases correctly, the agency can challenge the deregulation of that apartment and pull it back to rent stabilization. So I want to give an example. Uh, an apartment became deregulated. Uh, the last rent was $2,200. There was a vacancy, did some work. The rent went over the, the old $2,500 deregulation threshold. It's a small apartment. The owner could only collect $2,200, $2,300. He gave the tenant a, a paper lease that says this is a deregulated lease and uh, the rent for your apartment is $2,300. And then he did a bunch of renewals, and those renewals are at $2,300, $2,400. Now that tenant loses their job and they can't afford to pay their rent, and they file a claim with DHCR. The owner's going to say, I deregulated the apartment with you three, four years ago. I've issued only deregulated paper leases. And the agency is going to say, well, the deregulation threshold used to be $2,500. These paper leases don't list a legal rent of $2,500. They only list a rent of $2,300. And because you only put down $2,300, that is a rent-stabilized rent. And we, you can't say as the owner, well, if I would or could or should have put down the vacancy factor and the renovations, the legal rent would be substantially higher than the $2,500. I just didn't write it down on the paper lease. If you don't put it down on the paper lease, even for deregulated apartments, the, there have been cases where the agency has come back and said, sorry, that apartment is rent stabilized because you didn't execute the lease properly. Well, thank you for that. That was very comprehensive. It sounds to me, Simon, and, and I mentioned this before on the call, that it's a complicated environment, and, and it's really not for the faint of heart. If somebody is not making sure 
that they're following all these rules and guidelines, which effectively are laws, uh, they could be putting themselves, as I said before, at great financial risk. So it pays to have somebody like yourself uh, who goes in and takes a look at what it is that they're doing now and make sure that they're not going to have problems down the road. So with that said, we have about 15 minutes left, and I just wanted to get to a few more things. Let's talk about combining two or more previously regulated apartments that are presently vacant. So let's say one apartment was rent controlled, the person moved out, you regained possession of the apartment, you went through the process that we talked about earlier in the call, and you leave it vacant because you know that the tenant upstairs, downstairs, or next door is going to move out. And you're saying to yourself, I'll combine these two apartments and I'll create an apartment that didn't exist. And now it's going to be new construction and I will be able to charge market rent for this new combined larger apartment. Or maybe I'm taking two that are next to each other and I'm making one bigger as a, let's say it was uh, a two bedroom and a studio. Now I'm making two one bedrooms. So the envelope of the two apartments changes. Please talk to me about that strategy for deregulating apartments. So it's an excellent strategy, whether you have a, uh, a vacant building or a, a building that hasn't been occupied for many years, or whether it's uh, a railroad apartment that's massive and you want to uh, split it down the middle. The code says we have all these regulations for an apartment that we know. When you create a brand new space, because there was no prior rent for that apartment, you're allowed to set off first or market rent for the uh, first tenant that moves into that new apartment. Setting a first rent doesn't mean that the apartment becomes deregulated in free market. It means you're allowed to set a first rent. So if that first rent, if the actual amount the tenant pays is less than $2,700, the apartment is rent stabilized. And if the actual rent the tenant pays is more than $2,700, it's free market. Uh, because it's a brand new space and there's no prior rent, you can't say, well, I want to have a legal rent of $2,700 and deregulate it, but because it's so small, I can only collect $2,300. It has to be whatever the tenant pays becomes the base rent, and if that rent is over $2,700, you're good. So I have lots of clients that take uh, first-floor apartments, and either duplex them down to the basement or duplex them out to the, the backyard uh, or uh, combine apartments. Uh, and then they go ahead and they say they first will mark your rent. And, uh, you know, if you're doing that in Manhattan, 19 times out of 20, that rent is going to be substantially higher than the deregulation threshold. You just need to make sure that uh, you hire an architect and file the plans and that you have a strong paperwork trail to show either to DHCR or theoretically in housing court that you created a brand new space and it's a legal space. Because a lot of people will just put up a wall in a big apartment and, and not file all the plans and then they can't prove at a later date that they legally created a brand new space. But it is an excellent strategy for... Uh, uh, setting a rent and uh, setting a market rent and kind of uh, circumventing some of the code issues. 
So that's a great strategy, as you say, but you still will have to deal with the paperwork and make sure that you're filing with the Department of Buildings, the DOB, and you're not even really getting into anything with the DHCR at this point. It's only in the future if they come back to you and say, hey, how come this, these apartments are not you know, regulated? They were, they were previously regulated. You know, oh, well, I changed the envelope and, and let's go, let's go, let's take a walk over to the Department of Buildings and I'll show you where I filed the, filed the plans three years ago. And then you're good. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of people think, well, I bought a six-unit building. Uh, I'm going to take the two apartments on the top floor. And I'm going to make them into uh, a, a penthouse apartment. So now I only legally have five apartments in the building instead of six. So now not only is the the brand new apartment on the top floor not subject to rent stabilization law, because the building now only contains five apartments, the other four apartments aren't subject to the code either because the code only applies to residential buildings containing six or more apartments. And that's not the case because the remaining four apartments and the tenants in them will still remain, uh, retain rent-stabilized rights and protections. So you can combine apartments, but it's only those apartments that are combined that you're allowed to set that first rent. The other units in the structure will remain rent-stabilized. And, and I think a lot of owners do know that if they combine apartments, uh, they can charge a first rent. It's just a question of the physical layout of the building might not allow that to happen, or they'd rather have two studios paying $2,200 than one larger apartment that maybe they can only get $3,800 for. So it's not necessarily when you combine, it's guaranteed that you're going to link increase in rent roll, you'll definitely take a unit out of regulation, but not necessarily collect more rent. So you have to do, uh, you have to do your homework before you go along that route. Do your due diligence before you commit for sure. All right. So let's take this like one step further. So now I buy a vacant building and let's say that vacant building has 15 units. It's been vacant anywhere from you know, 15 years to the last two years. Finally, the last tenant moved out. If any of these units were previously rent regulated, they would have to change the envelope of all of them or are they automatically out of regulation when they got the building? I mean, how does that work? So the, the, the agency says that if you do a gut renovation of a property, that entitles you to file an application to exempt the building from the code. So a, a lot of people think that if they either buy a building and do the work or they buy a building where the previous owner has done the work, and it's apparent from just looking at the building and looking at the apartments that they did a substantial renovation. They think just because the work has been done, the building is automatically not subject to rent stabilization law. That is not true. If you got renovate a building, it's... Uh, uh, 80% of the building-wide systems, you should be able to stand in the basement and see the sky. Um, you're putting in a new roof, new boiler, new stairwell, new windows, new wiring, new plumbing, new everything. And then it, within each apartment, you're basically installing everything from the lathe to, to brand new everything. 
that entitles you to file an application to exempt the building. The agency takes many years to grant those applications. So it's a tough process to go to exempt the building. It's, it's a much more efficient way to go to say, I have this vacant building. It's been, some of the apartments have been vacant for 10 or 15 years. I know that the last legal rent for each apartment was between eight and $1,800. I then know that I spent sixty dollars or $70,000 in apartment-specific renovations, and I'm going to take the last rent of record and add in all the renovation dollars that I did to determine the next rent. Because if you file that application to exempt your building, you could be waiting 10 years for the agency to make a decision. It's not an easy process. The political climate is that the agency doesn't want to pull any residential apartments out of the market, so they're not likely to grant owner exemption orders. So it's better to have the different plan of going to the last rent of record, adding in the state vacancy factor, and then adding in all the renovation dollars to determine the next rent. So when someone is looking at a building and they have in mind that they want to take an accelerated process to move the apartments out of regulation, they really they really need to study all the different options and understand which one is going to provide the most financial advantage and that's something that's something you can help somebody with, right? I mean, you use the word accelerated there's no accelerated process, whether you're buying a 10-unit structure in Astoria, Queens, in the West Village, or in Brooklyn. You're buying the building. You have tenants in place. If those tenants don't leave, you can't make them go. There is no law that can make them go. You're legally allowed to buy them out, but if they don't want to go, you're then stuck with that structure and the rents and the current really small rent guideline board renewal percentages, theoretically for many, many years. The world is full of, of owners that are buying buildings in neighborhoods where the market rents three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000, but they have a building with tenants that have been there for 25 years paying five, six, $700, and those tenants don't want to go, and they don't have to go if they don't want to go. If you're lucky, you can buy people out, and if you're not lucky, you have to be able to make that building work. Talk to me about how the buyout works. Well, the code says that you are allowed to go and approach a tenant and say, I'd like to get possession of your apartment. I'm willing to offer you some money to leave. It's a, a haphazard process because you never know what the right amount of money is to offer to a tenant to get them to move out. The New York City Council uh, last year passed some specific laws to prevent owners from harassing uh, tenants with buyouts. Owners can be fined if they don't follow these laws. So you, you are allowed to speak to a tenant or you're allowed to write a letter to them asking if they would consider a buyout. If the tenant says no, you don't have the opportunity to ask them again and again and again. You get your, your one or two chances and that's it. That's how the buyout process works. I actually have an associate. All she does is she takes tenants out to dinner on the client's money and uh, asks them what they're doing with their lives and would they consider 
moving out of the apartments or being moved to another apartment. She is a specialist at buying out tenants in uh, difficult situations, but she primarily deals with upscale buildings in Manhattan, and that's all she does. Uh, so I'm sure some of our listeners will reach out to you to maybe uh, get in touch with her because uh, she's a negotiator. It's a, that's a very unique service of calling up a tenant and taking them out to dinner to ask them about their life and whether they would be willing to vacate their apartment. You just have to offer the right amount of incentive. I was at another uh, presentation where I heard a little bit about this, and I understand that if you're going to do this, you really need to keep records of everything that happened, like when you approached the person, what was said. Uh, I was told that it's better to write an email or a letter first, so this way you have a paper trail. So this way you're not subject to scrutiny about how you did this that could then be construed as harassment. Correct. We have a few minutes left, Simon, and I just wanted to cover a couple of things. Well, I think we've already established the unpopularity of this. It's really not popular with the landlord community. But what about politicians? You know, across the United States, the vast majority of people own and very few people rent. And in New York City, 80% of people rent and only 20% of people own because there's so many people and such little land. And all of those people that rent uh, all vote for their local politicians and all of their local politicians all vote for uh, the extension of rent stabilization law, for rent stabilization law to be strengthened, that landlords are making too much money off the back of poor tenants. The code does go through changes. In the 80s, it was uh, pro-tenant. In the 90s, it was from the 90s to 2008, 2010. Uh, the landlord lobby was successful in pushing through uh, the deregulation of, of uh, apartments and the four-year statute of limitations and gutted a substantial part of the code. And uh, the pendulum has now swung in the other direction with uh, rent stabilization law being uh, strengthened and the environment is not good. But the, the, the counterpoint to that is that the New York City real estate market has been thriving for the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, there are so many uh, foreign investors and American pension funds that want to buy real estate, not just commercial uh, real estate and hotels, they want to buy apartment buildings too. There's a huge bucket of money uh, that wants to buy up our real estate. And in one way, it shuts out the small New York investor. But in another way, it elevates the price of uh, properties on the market. That's really good if you own a building or several buildings, and now you decide that you want to cash that money in and do something else. So there are lots of different forces that are working on the market. Some are negative and some are positive. Are there any changes that we can expect in the future to rent regulation law that you know of? Also, as I said earlier on in the interview, every time there is an action in housing court or there is a, an overcharge complaint or some sort of tenant complaint in front of a rent administrator, the, the agency or housing court will make a ruling 
and it will change uh, issues on the margin, and uh, that will ripple through the code. The agency does have meetings with the New York State Assembly on what the assembly members want to do with the code. We don't find out about those meetings until they actually make changes in the code. But they, they do want to make the code stronger and they want to take away uh, additional provisions that are beneficial for owners. But what those specific issues are, I do not know yet. So how do existing management companies, building owners, even small landlords in the city, how is their voice heard? The Rent Stabilization Association, they do uh, a lot of work on behalf of uh, owners and there are lobby for owners. And then individual owners donate money to politicians, get their voice heard when decisions are made in Albany. It's a strange mix because I think either a 50-50 split or the Republicans might still control the Senate in Albany. All of the Republicans are all from upstate and Long Island and uh, no direct saying in rent stabilization law. But they're the ones that, you know, try to keep the, the, uh, the code from getting too strong. If the Democrats ever got a substantial ma- majority, they're the ones that would want to make the code much, much stronger than it is now. So right now it's a balance. So the code gets extended each four years with just a few changes. But there could be violent swings in the direction of the code one way or the other, depending on who uh, controls Albany. So the voice of the building owner is really heard through these organizations. The one you mentioned was RSA. That's the rent. RSA is one. There's another one called CHIP. And there are probably other organizations that I don't know. Yeah, I'm actually a member of CHIP. It's a great organization. Community Housing Improvement Program. CHIP provides an outlet for the voice of the landlord as as far as I know, and they have some great programs as well. So so building owners that are not familiar with those organizations can look into them. They are uh, an active voice for owners. They really want hands-on, hand-holding help. You or someone like you is definitely a person to reach out to. And And one of the things that you said before which I was very impressed by, was the number of law firms that retain you on an ongoing basis to help with the commercial real estate uh, transactions in the multifamily sector that they're dealing with with their clients. And I think that says a lot about the service that you offer. So, Simon, uh, we're out of time, and I just want to say that that was incredible. Fabulous. And I'm sure that everyone that has listened to this has gotten a lot out of it. Very excited to maybe know some things that they didn't know before and will help them with due diligence, not only in their existing portfolio, but as they grow their portfolio and also as they disposition some of their portfolio, they'll know some of the things that they have to do in advance to make sure that they're able to get the highest market value when they sell that building. Absolutely. And I would like to uh, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I really hope that uh, your listeners get some value from this and your podcast. Oh, I think I think. Well, thank you. But I think we accomplished that today for sure. Uh, I just wanted to share your contact information one more time. Again, there are two ways to get in touch with you, your email address and your business phone number. DHCRGuru at gmail.com. Or my office directly is uh, 718-318-8340.
Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Bill. Hey there, everyone. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Don't want to miss an episode? Then subscribe right on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music, or just search for Realty Speak on your device's podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Overcast on Apple devices. And now Realty Speak is also on Spotify. To share with others, just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, you and I can connect to chat about your plans with your real estate investments, whether to buy, sell, or just chat about strategies on what you currently own. The website is BillWidener.com, and all my information is there. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but about how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time, everyone.